0: This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCweb.org. Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's a beautiful uh, opportunity to be in the South when you live in the North and enjoy some of what, even though it might be a cool day for Texas, is a warm day for Bering Springs, Michigan. Let's pray together. Thank You, Lord, for the privilege of Christian convocations. Thank You for the blessings that You've already poured out. And I pray now, Lord, continue to prepare our hearts, anoint the presentation. We know Your Word is Spirit-filled and Spirit-breathed. So now, Lord, I pray, may we do nothing to short-circuit its power. Bless us as we worship you through this day, set a watch before my lips and a guard before the door of my mouth, and give me holy boldness as well, I pray, and readiness of heart, myself and those who have gathered here to search the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, open them, if you would, to the book of Corinthians, First Corinthians. I have a challenging topic this morning. But we've gathered as Bereans seeking to discern truth. As Christians, as Seventh day Adventist Christians, we have allowed God's Spirit to be the guiding beacon of our lives through His Word, through the Spirit of prophecy, in communion and community with each other. The book of First Corinthians is one that I like to call the postmodern gospel. It's resplendent with a variety of challenges, some that would make your church look like the healthiest church on the face of the planet. But it's not a stellar beginning, even though it's a beautiful ending. Paul finds himself dealing with a fractured church, a group of people that are celebritizing their allegiance to people instead of to Christ. He's gotten word back from one of the notable and trustworthy women of the church that there's a problem, and he's confident that it is so. Now, Paul does not practice the modern forms of pastoral esteemism. He speaks with love, the truth as it is in Jesus, and he speaks directly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive, and indeed even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly, for since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking? I like this supplied phrase in the New American Standard, are you not walking as mere men? The implied directive is that the indwelling presence of Christ, the friendship of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the direction of the Father raises us up above what regular humanity would allow us to achieve. And so this morning, I want to talk about something very challenging to every human being. I want to talk to you about authority, and I want to talk to you about accountability. The first thing I want to ask you is, Are you subject to the lawful, legal, God-appointed authorities in your life? Are you accountable to anybody? Are you infected with the spirit of this age that deifies your own opinion and your own experience and turns it into reality? This morning, we find ourselves in a larger picture as a world body of believers, stressing and struggling over how to conduct our business but I want to come back to the individual experience this morning I want to come back to the experience of your home I want to come back to the experience of your church, your workplace God has said in this very same or epistle let all things be done decently and in order it is impossible to do things decently and in order with individuals who are nurturing, cherishing, fertilizing a spirit of independence or rebellion So my story is just a little bit unique because I'm the child of a rebellious woman. Now my mother is highly esteemed in my life and if she had the link perhaps this morning she'd be watching. Instead she's probably watched the pastor at the church where I'm usually at. But my mother is the middle of three girls whose life was difficult. Her father was an alcoholic and the stories that I can recall from my own experience as well as the one she told like she and her two sisters fleeing from their drunken father, hiding with their mother, my dear grandmother, who prayed me into this church, locking themselves in the bathroom because grandpa was drunk with a butcher knife and was chasing them around the house. This is not an ideal childhood. I can remember as probably a 10 or 12 year old boy sitting in the car looking up onto the porch and saying, Dad, Grandpa is hitting Mom. He had her by the hair, and and he was beating on her. Now, my father is, at least was, before he became aged, a larger man than myself. And to watch my dad go deliver my mother from the hands of someone that was supposed to create security was a strange thing. So you could say my mother had excuse or reason. She was expelled from her academy six weeks before she graduated. My mother was a rebel. The Spirit of God is moving on her heart and she is submitting step by step to Jesus Christ in her older age. Can you say amen? Amen. Now it's a strange thing that my mother in her younger years should make some of the decisions she made. I learned early on in my home what authority was. And by the way, this is one of the first things to be achieved by human parents, is the loving Direction of proper authority and control. Children who don't learn it become a blight to society, to their own homes, to the churches and the institutions they attempt to work for. My mother taught me she meant what she said. I can remember when I was in the sixth grade attending that little public school in Market Heights, Illinois, getting a missive from the principal who had appeared at the door of my sixth grade classroom and had directed the teacher to send me out. I was being sent home. This was exceptionally unusual. It was the middle of the morning. You don't leave school to go home unless there's an emergency. Well, in her point of view, there was a problem sizable enough to call me home. When I got home, what I found out was that the problem was that I had not cleaned my room the way she had told me to clean my room. Now, this wasn't terribly surprising to me to be called home to do what she had told me to do. But what was more troubling was when my room was cleaned and my mother said to me, now you're going back to school. And I thought, I'm going to face a thousand questions and they're all going to be about why I left school. My mother taught me that she meant what she said. That was important because a year or two later at the end of a little summer vacation at my aunt and uncle's house, she called me out on the porch and she said, "Uh, Ronnie, some things are going to change for you. Now you have to remember, by the time I was 13, 14 years old, I was taller than my mother and I was looking down at her and she said to me, you are going to church school in a few days. And I said, no, I am not. Now you have to remember, for me, church was a bad association. When I was a little boy, my grandmother had tried over and over again to make this church thing stick. And I can remember going into the primary room. This is my first memory of church. It's still fairly vivid in my 54-year-old mind. And I'm sitting in a circle with all these primaries in the basement of the Peoria church. And they had handed out books of the Bible. Now, fortunately for me, I didn't get Haggai or Zechariah or something like that. I got the easiest book in the Bible to pronounce except I got it wrong, because when they came around to me, I said I had the book of Job. And that's exactly what happened. And I decided I don't ever want to come back to this place again. Now, it wasn't their fault, and yet every parent with a little child ought to send their children to Sabbath school knowing they're going as a missionary, because some backslider's kid might be there that day because... The grandma is praying for them. That's what happened to me. And I thought, when I show up in that church school, I'm just going to get perpetual rounds of being a misfit. Only now I'm a lot older and it bothers me a whole lot more. My mother wasn't going to back up an inch. She had fought my father for years. A good man. But a man who didn't understand why you'd pay good money to leave a good public school. But my mother, in a strange situation, a paradox, as it were, from her own life of rebellion, was now exerting an authority over me. And pretty soon, standing on that front porch, I was weeping and crying and praying that she would change her mind because I saw that steely look in her face. There was no going backwards. I was going to Peoria Junior Academy because she said so. And when I walked into that Classroom that first day and the Spirit of God was there upon the teacher and upon many of the students, I began a trajectory that has me standing before you here today because in my home there was a proper understanding of who was in charge and what authority meant. Loving, proper, firm, kind authority. Now this morning, I want to remind you of some stories in the Bible. We're living in an age in which independence of thought The postmodern mantra for how you're to live is that what happens between your experience and the synapses in your brain creates your own reality and nobody has a right to question it. But this is not what the Bible teaches. This is not how healthy homes work. And this is not how healthy churches work. We believe in a higher authority that is God's Word. Amen? That authority directs our path. It supersedes culture when it comes to moral living and societal directions on how to maintain this authority in the home. We can go all the way back. Take your Bibles. Go back to First Samuel chapter two. We can see that this authority should be practiced first in the home. First Samuel chapter two: the sad story of a man who did not properly exercise his authority, Eli. His boys, they had no sense of the sacred. They did not recognize their, their father's authority. For Samuel chapter two, looking at verses 12 to 17. We won't read it all, but let's just start with verse 12. It says, "Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord." Skip down to verse 27. There was a man of God sent to Eli's house. The man of God came to Eli and he said, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to carry an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? And then this Telling rebuke, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I've commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me, making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? And then if you turn over to the next chapter, come down to verse 13. We know that Samuel has a vision. It'd be a heavy vision for a young person to relate to an older person. And by the way, Spirit of Prophecy, speaking of this arrangement between the aged Eli and the youthful Samuel, says this is as it should be. If you want to avoid issues with authority, practice the cross-generational honor that God has put in place. Start with your parents. Go to the Sabbath school teachers, the preachers, and all those other individuals that are in your life. This young man had a telling, painful prophecy for his mentor. Verse 13, for have I not told him? I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and the final telling epitaph on the ministry of Eli's family is and he did not rebuke them. So I want to ask you today, are you under authority? Husbands, do you recognize that there are people put in your life to bring accountability to your manhood? Young people, does the admonition to obey your parents matter to you? Or do you believe they don't have rights in certain places? Ellen White commenting on the story of Eli and his sons and challenging a dysfunctional family of her day reminds them that while they are under your roof and even beyond, your parental authority, the parental authority in your life, is not over. Does it change? Does it morph? Does it adapt? Yes. But that admonition to honor those that are placed in authority over you is imperative. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Leading off in the New Testament gospel after the Sermon on the Mount is this powerful story. It's the story of a non-Israelite, a non-Christian, a non-Adventist, if you would, The story of a man who had been watching from a distance. Matthew chapter 8. He has a sick member of his household and he would like them to be healed. A servant. Jesus says in verse 7, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And this phraseology in verse 9 is exceptionally powerful. He says, For I also... What a strange lead-in to honor Jesus. But he says, For I also... Me too. I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another one, Come, and he comes. And to my slave, Do this, and he does it. And Jesus is almost stunned by the experience. It speaks to him so powerfully that he stops and makes a commentary where he says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is the lead example of how to live under authority. Jesus was under his parents' authority with a few exceptions when the authority of his father dictated a different course, like at the 12-year appointment in the temple. Jesus himself walked under the direction of his Father with no literal, structural, governmental authority in his life. He walked in the way that God chose for him, and this was the model for you and me. So what does it mean when we start to dialogue about dynamics of authority in the church? Ellen White will speak, and she says, Men and women who in their different organizations are brought together in church capacity, have peculiarities and faults. As these are developed, they will require reproof. If those who are placed in positions never reproved, never rebuked, there would soon be a demoralizing condition of things that would greatly dishonor God. There's something about the dynamic of someone standing in your way when you're marching down a wrong road it is absolutely imperative to eternal salvation and health and happiness in this world. Now, we all come from a variety of churches. Your church may be very healthy at the moment. Your church may be struggling. We also are involved in a larger body. Ellen White has a thousand references. Now, of course, many of these are repeats, but when you go to the website and you study the phrase, "pressed together, when you go to the website and you study the phrase, the prayer of Christ. All of those can be tied back, or most of them, to the references to John chapter 17, Christ's prayer for oneness. It is impossible to be one with someone who is nurturing the root of rebellion, of independent thought and spirit. If you're married to somebody like this, I feel sorry for you. Keep praying. Be wise and patient. If you're raising a child who has decided that their own way is better than anybody else's, this is a challenge. God will work in the midst of it to do something in you and eventually, by God's grace and through your prayers, in the life of the child. If you're in a church and there's stress fractures all around, don't give up. It's a call to prayer. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one just as He and the Father and the Spirit were one. It is so absolutely important that we are one because this oneness is more and more unique in an age of polarization and stress fracture. Ellen White writing in 1888 when the church was undergoing one of its most painful moments said Satan is the accuser of the brethren and when he can set the leaven of dissatisfaction to work in the human hearts, he's exalted. When he can divide the brethren whether it's at home or church or wherever, when he can divide the brethren, listen to this phrase, he has a hellish jubilee. This kind of party should not be thrown with the encouragement of thinking, praying Seventh-day Adventist Christians. It's not our job to fertilize or nurture the kind of division. It takes too much work to stay together. Look around. Everything's falling apart. Families, institutions, even The government. It appears that people can't talk anymore, and it must be about time for those prophetic strokes described in the book of Revelation to take place when we see a great overreach of authority, a dominion over conscience. She goes on and she says, I think if our brethren could see as I've seen how much wrong is done in speaking evil of our brethren, there'd be an entire change in the way we treat one another. You do not understand yourselves. Very interesting phrase. You misinterpret words and deeds and you measure them from your own finite standpoint. Your imagination leads you astray. Your feelings, your tongues, which are not sanctified are employed in service and work that is anything but holy and Christ-like. I had a member send me an email just a few weeks ago And he told me of a painful story there happening in southwest Michigan. Very respectable member, sound, solid man, older gentleman, respected in the community, He said he went to do some work. He was probably consulting somebody on a project, for he's an expert in his field. And in the process, somebody who had worked, if you would like to say it in such a way, farther up in the organization of the church, went into their house, and they came out with a cartoon, The cartoon had a picture of one of our leaders wearing a Nazi SS Gestapo uniform, and the person holding the piece of paper thought it was exceptionally funny. The member who related the story to me did not, and he fulfilled a proper role in challenging in love the perspective of the individual who thought that the caricature of one of our leaders was humorous. I don't know that he changed anybody's mind, but he did the right thing in challenging a wrong mindset. We're reaping the bitter fruits of at least one generation, maybe two, in America and beyond America. That largely speaking, has not been held accountable by its parents, its teachers, or its ministers. When Paul says we're to walk worthy and he writes a book that he thinks may break his relationship with the Corinthian church, what he's doing is being a faithful father of that flock. Doctrine is important and it matters that we have right doctrine. I want to assure you today that parental authority, pastoral authority, even positional authority is all part of saving us from driving our spiritual conveyances to heaven off a cliff. And it's absolutely important that in my heart, as Edwin Friedman says in his book A Failure of Nerve, that I am responsible and honest with myself about myself because I might not see myself the way God sees me. I was dealing with a number of pastors, many of them exceptionally wonderful people, and I shared with them a summary of one of my presentations of a recent message on authority and power. The pastor lingered around for a little bit and he said to me, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying mainly, but I'm not so sure about the maneuvering at the top, some of the maneuvering behind the administrational Choices. Now, I need you to understand a word. There's a word in our English language. It is the word pejorative. The word pejorative is a phrase that means the words you're using are dripping with some form of negativity or detrimental speech, something that casts a negative light one of your church members were to come to me and say that you and your position were maneuvering something, it's got the sound and the feel of manipulation. It's not a proper way to describe somebody else's actions. But in my reflecting on the Scriptures, I think there were some others in the Scriptures who thought that maybe there was some maneuvering going on. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. They were at the very top, almost. Their younger brother was the leader. His name was Moses. And it appeared that he had chosen to take advice from someone else than them. It created a bit of jealousy, the spirit of prophecy will write, it created a bit of suspicion. But what's worse, is that in their journey to reconciling that somebody else was in the circle of administration, They became blind. It was a blindness they could not see. Writing in Patriarchs and Prophets, the author states that Jethro had come into the camp, father-in-law of Moses, and that Miriam and Aaron feared that his influence with the great leader exceeded theirs. Miriam and Aaron, she writes on page 83, were blinded by jealousy and ambition. Now, to me, that's a very important phrase. Because when you're blinded, you can't see. She goes on to state, had Aaron stood up firmly for the right, he might have checked the evil. But instead of showing Miriam the sinfulness of her conduct, he sympathized with her, listening to her words of complaint, and thus came to share in her jealousy. Now, I need you to understand something. I have a very, very expensive education. I'm not talking about the one I got in Andrews, which was worth every penny. I'm not talking about the one I got at the seminary, which was exceptionally beneficial to me. I'm talking about the one that I got after that, the 30 years of parenting and pastoring where I have uh, lost sleep, lost friends, lost favor. I'm talking to you about the rejection and the resistance to a ministry that I believe most of the time has been motivated by a genuine love for my people. Some of you have more expensive educations than I because you've sought to be faithful through the years and you're older than I am. This life that we're living when we live it with Christ is the ultimate teacher for Jesus himself is the shepherd and the architect. He is the engineer of every day to teach us the things we need to learn in the journey we're on. Yes, this education is expensive And I want to make sure you know something. You need to be very careful how you listen to people. You listen to somebody the wrong way, you have reinforced wrong thinking. I sat on the airplane last night between Karen and Sunshine Ray. That's her real name. Sunshine Ray was younger than me. Karen was older than me. Sunshine's on her way to take care of a Relative who's struggling mentally. She's concerned about her mental well-being. Listen, if you don't show the right kind of discretion in listening, you should always listen long enough to understand. But you better be careful you don't listen in the wrong way to the wrong sentiments because you can reinforce them and set the person on a journey that they will pay a high price to make a U-turn on. Aaron should have stood up to her. Aaron should have said, Miriam, you're going the wrong way. God has clearly marked out our younger brother as the leader. But instead of showing Miriam the sinfulness of her conduct, he sympathized, and pretty soon she knew she was right, and he thought she was right. Numbers chapter 12. The Bible has a very interesting and painful confrontation recorded in this chapter, and probably most of you have missed the power of its painfulness. It says in verse 1, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. or he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And then these, this short phrase, The Lord heard it. Now all of us should be reminded of what Timothy is told by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 Verses 3, 4, and 5. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and faith unfeigned. If you're a younger leader, if you're a parent, if you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, if you're just a Christian, remember this. Paul will summarize his book by saying, look, the purpose of the commandment, if you forget everything else, Timothy, remember this. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. A good conscience and faith unfeigned. When you say something you shouldn't say, when you think something you shouldn't think, and God plucks the cords of your conscience, don't turn that into something religious that you need to kick to the curb. There is a living God. He's unseen, but He's alive. He wants to dwell in your heart and mind, and He will talk to you if you've educated your heart, mind, and journey in this book. When Miriam and Aaron began thinking wrong and speaking wrong, you can be sure the Spirit of God was ahead of time contending with them. They chose to reject it, but there is this commentary that God Himself heard it. Verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any other man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three, come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. You know, when my mother called me by all, my entire name with all my siblings and I was told to appear, it was a troublesome moment, which this will be. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both conformed, he said, Hear now my words. This is a very direct encounter. There's not a lot of warm-up. There won't be a lot of postlude. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. In other words, God's taking him up a notch. He's faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses, So the anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. What you need to understand is that in the book of Exodus chapter 22, Moses directed... The congregation of evil of, of Israel not to speak evil against a ruler. This is what Paul was referencing to when in Acts chapter twenty two or twenty three he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and he starts his speech out by saying, I'm standing before you here in all good conscience. And and the the high priest doesn't like it, and he says to his attendant, Hit him in the mouth. He just gives a little hand moment, and he hits Paul in the mouth, and Paul says, Under inspiration, not as irritated response he says may God strike you you whitewash wall for striking me against the law and the person standing next to Paul says something very interesting he says are you going to talk that way about the high priest and Paul says I didn't know it was the high priest and then there is his statement which is a reference to Exodus chapter 22 don't speak evil against a ruler this dynamic has been communicated to Israel and yet it is something that Miriam and Aaron seem quite casual in going against. You should not be speaking evil against dignitaries for even the angels, Peter were right, don't bring riling accusations against them. When you lose proper structure in society you can lose civility and when you lose these dynamics you've lost more than you can get back in a generation a home that is not properly under authority a church an administrative structure there is to be a humility about the servants of christ with an appropriate submission to each other that allows god to speak through the ones he appoints when david is being chased around the wilderness by saul he's in the cave david sneaks up to him His men are all saying, this is what God said, I'll turn your enemies over to you. David goes up on his hands and knees, pulls his sword out of its sheath. The light coming from the entrance of the cave is glistening off the blade. But all the while, love from a pure heart, a good conscience and faith unfeigned are wrestling with the would-be king's and the will-be king's heart. And David is close to taking the life of his persecutor, but then he slides the knife back into its sheath and he goes back and he says, I'm not going to be the one who raises my hand against the Lord's anointed. David later finds another opportunity. This time he's with one of his mighty men, Abishai, his nephew. This is the man who will save David from one of Goliath's relatives later on. And they'll tell David, no more coming onto the battlefield with us. They go all the way into the center of camp, which is a gutsy move. And as they're there with a a divine slumber on all of David's enemies, Abishai says, let me take the spear and I can take care of him in one thrust. It'll be over and life will be better and different. And David says, there's no way. God can take him out. God can deal with him. I'm not going to be the one who strikes the Lord's anointed. I want you to know something. If you are a child, barring some unusual circumstance, God has anointed your parents to be a proper authority in your life, and it didn't end when you got old enough to come to GYC. It changed, and it'll keep changing. If God has called your pastor to your church, I hope that before he came, you got down on your knees and did a lot of praying, because personnel decisions are great big deals. But once he brings him, it's important for you to make sure that you understand that there were prayerful administrative moments and there was a laying on of hands and he is or she is to be the one that is guiding you on this journey. God is in the midst of his administrative componentry if we will bring him in. Verse 10. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. And the Lord said to Moses, "Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, which we have acted foolishly in and have sinned. And don't let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Oh God, healer, I pray. And listen to God's response. But the Lord said to Moses, Now this is going to strike many as offensive to the sensibilities of our modern society and our, our culture. This is going to strike many as out of character with the very nature of God. But I'd like to challenge you this morning that when you become blind and when you become jealous and God's got to come down and smite you with leprosy, there's a pretty serious spiritual disease that's farther advanced than you might know. And it might require a severe rebuke, which is what this whole chapter is. But this is what God says. If her father had but spit in her face, she would bear her shame for seven days. Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and she can be received again. This manifestation, Ellen White will write, of the Lord's displeasure was designed to be a warning to all Israel, to check the growing spirit of discontent and insubordination. If Miriam's envy and dissatisfaction had not been signally rebuked, it would have resulted in great evil. The judgment visited upon Miriam should be a rebuke to all who yield to jealousy and murmur against those whom God lays the burden of His work. You know, we have a responsibility and a right to our leaders, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a governmental leader. We have the obligation to pray, Paul says, for those that are in authority. We have the God divinely directed counsel of Matthew 18 to go and talk to people. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, Pastor, it won't do any good. How do you know it's not going to do any good? You don't know until you go. And besides, the good it will do will be in you by giving you the proper humility and courage and love that will only make you a more effective leader the rest of your life. And whether or not it does any good in the moment, it has the power to do good somewhere down the road. If you haven't read the rest of the book of Numbers you need to understand that this problem with insubordination was an Israelite problem. Stephen will be stoned in the book of Acts because he says that Israel was a st- stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked people. It's true. The people in the camp of Israel needed no encouragement from the second and third in command to stand up to the leader and act like their leaders too. And if you read the next chapters of the book of Numbers, you see rebellion after rebellion. You may think something, that if you say, will sow the seeds of doubt in resentment and insubordination and rebellion in the heart of somebody else and Satan's right there behind you to water and fertilize it and it may cost them their eternal life. This is why God shows up so powerfully in this story and says, there just isn't going to be any of this. You know, there's a lot of references in the Scriptures To military metaphors. Paul will talk about a soldier not going to war at his own expense. We sing about onward Christian soldiers and stand like the brave. The spirit of prophecy will talk about not everyone being able to be generals and captains and sergeants or even corporals. And I'm quoting from her now out of Christian stewardship. There's a hard work of other kinds to be done. Some must dig trenches and build fortifications. Some must stand as sentinels. Some are to carry messages. You know why? God has a specific, special place for your life, but He may not be calling you to lead. He may be calling you to follow and hold up to the hands of the ones He's called you to support. The ones that He has called to lead. There's all kinds of metaphors of military might and military order in the scriptures but right now the devil has one goal and this is the point he wants to make sure that Seventh-day Adventism is at war with nobody except itself and I want you to think about it it's not your job to go home from this message or another and flavor your Christian life by chewing on the preacher or the teacher or the Sabbath school leader That's not how you're to flavor your Christian experience. There is to be a beautiful, submissive humility. It's enough humility to stand up in love when you should, and it's enough humility to get down on your knees and pray often. Until we recognize that we need accountability, we will probably resent and resist accountability. And I can assure you for anyone that's dealing with dynamics of resistance right now, that If someone will not submit to authority, eventually they will have to convince themselves that that authority is abusive and not legitimately do the support of those that find themselves in the structures of governance underneath them, if you should say it such a way. I'm holding in my hands an amazing device. I want to illustrate this because in a crowd this big, there's bound to be somebody for whom this is salient. If I could smash every smartphone in the world that was held by an adolescent's hand, I'd do it. Not because it's inherently evil. Just because I'm the father of four and I've gone through so many chapters where the world has tried to get between me and the rightful discipleship of my child by the unaccountable access to their mind with a a moving of the thumb. They can be sitting at my table. I can walk in, and with one sweep of the thumb, they can be in a different world. If you think I don't have experience, I pastored for almost 20 years next to an academy. But my real experience is in raising four children. You know, my mother actually bought one of these for one of my children, whom I will remain nameless. So you only get a 25% chance of figuring out who it is if you know my kids. And before it was put into their hands I said now you know that as a dad I have a right to look at this phone whatever I want and look at anything I want. And you know what they did? They couldn't they couldn't turn their head up and down fast enough to agree with what I was saying. But I want to assure you when the day came that I wanted to look at it that was none of my business. Now I want you to think about this. Are you a woman? Are you a man? Are you a boy? Are you a girl under authority? Are you your own authority? If so, the work of rebellion, which is how God characterized Moses' inability to go into the promised land. Read the book of Numbers. He is told that he acted in rebellion. We must conduct ourselves on the high plane of a noble, dignified, submissive spirit. Timothy tells us to test the spirits. John tells us to test the spirits. The spirit of independence of thought and pride of opinion. We don't worship idols anymore. We worship our own thinking. And that is perhaps the most dangerous way to live. We're to reject a factious man, the Scriptures say. Now, I'm about out of time and I want to appeal to you. I'm not God, neither are your parents, neither is your boss, neither is your conference president or anywhere up the line. But there's something about youth that lends itself to this fantastic vitality of spirit which sometimes doesn't want the reins pulled in on it. There's not a person listening to me today who doesn't have to wrestle with their own carnality and the idea of wanting to be right and not be told that they're wrong. But it's dangerous. In 1999, five people went to the top of El Capitan. They were going to base jump off the 3,200-foot granite monolith, and they were going to float down for three or four minutes to the base. Why were they there? They were there to protest a rule. They were there to protest that base jumping was no longer allowed in Yosemite. A young man not too many weeks before had jumped off El Capitan, floated fine to the base, and in his efforts to escape being apprehended by the Rangers, he tried to cross the Merced River and he drowned. So these five people wanted to take this rule to court, and the way they thought it best to do it was to go break the rule. So five people made their way to the top of this amazing American icon of natural beauty, Three of them jumped, and then came Jan Davis's turn. Her husband was on the ground taking pictures. When you jumped, you would be fined $2,000, you'd be thrown in jail, and the worst thing is they would confiscate your gear. She didn't want her gear confiscated, so she borrowed someone else's. When she leaped from the cliff that day, the 150 people at the bottom that were watching, along with their husband, who was good enough at parachuting that he had actually helped make some of the James Bond movies, the cameras were clicking, and as she leaped into the air, they watched for a few seconds, and then they all started saying the same thing, open, open. Open. It takes you four minutes to go from the top of El Capitan to the ground with a parachute. It takes you 20 seconds without one. Unfortunately, we know that. Her husband slumped over the camera. The pull cord on her chute was up here. The pull cord on the chute she had on was down here. And she had no backup chute. We are living at the end of time. We cannot afford to practice the mentalities of independence of thought and the rejection of proper authority. We must model proper governance and structure for the sake of the world to see that the Holy Spirit reigns in our midst individually and collectively. And this morning, God has appointed me to ask each of you Are you too a man or a woman under authority? Can God speak to you through someone else? And it's not abuse of power. It's legitimate love and concern. Could He even severely rebuke you? And would you accept it like David did when Abigail came to him and wrote later on wrote, Let the righteous smite me, and it shall be an ointment to me. It shall be balm for my soul. I'm appealing to you, whatever role, position, or place you hold, To let the Lord Jesus Christ, who submitted himself to terrible abuse of authority, and I'm not suggesting there's not a proper way to stand up and speak truth to power with the Spirit of Christ. I'm simply saying, let the truth speak to your own soul first, so that you wouldn't be blinded and miss the elemental lordship of Jesus Christ, which would allow us to dwell together in unity, and it could be like oil running down on the beard of Aaron. Let's pray. Lord, touch the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Do what only you can do to make us one. May we individually let you be Lord of our lives and submit to the working out, the engineering and the architecting of our character to live amongst the angels, where everything will be done decently and in good order. Bless us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.